Good morning, Eastgate Bible Church. Uh, today we are still continuing in the book of Acts from chapter 27, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 28, verse 15. So as we come before God's word, let's come before him in prayer and ask that he would work in us and through us by his word and his spirit. Lord, we thank you that all of your word is good. We thank you that all of it is given to us by you for our benefit. And we pray that we might receive that benefit, that your spirit might be at work in me as I speak and in all of us as we hear your word, the comforts that it provides, the challenges uh, that it confronts us with, and the joy of the hope in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray now. Amen. Now, the more I study the Bible, the more I get frustrated when I hear people teaching what we call prosperity doctrine. Now, what do I mean by prosperity doctrine? I mean, someone who says that if you are a Christian, you should expect nothing but health, wealth, success. In fact, nothing more than God's abundant blessings. No hardships, no sickness. Now, I understand the appeal of that. Who wouldn't want a life that's full of God's blessing? In fact, I long for that when I see Jesus face to face, because God has promised that when I see Jesus face to face, all of his children will experience nothing but the blessing of God. But in this life, in this world, he has not made such promises. When I read through the Bible, I don't see anybody whose life experiences reflect an idea of health, wealth, success and prosperity all of the time. If anyone was deserving or worthy for such a life, surely you'd expect Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Yet he says, I don't even have a place to lay my head. Mistreated even by some of his closest followers. Crucified on a Roman cross, even though everybody declared him to be innocent. Or what about the Apostle Paul? A great servant of God, preaching the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles, seeing people come to salvation in great numbers. Yet in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, sorry, chapter 11, Paul outlines the experiences that he had as a servant of Jesus Christ, including a time when he was stoned and dragged outside of the town and left, presuming that he was dead. Why does this teaching concern me? Well, firstly, it misrepresents God. It misrepresents God's character. It misrepresents God's word. And not only that, there's the effect that it has on people. You see, the people who will get sucked into this teaching, who are of the belief that God has promised them health, wealth, success, prosperity, and nothing but blessing, when inevitably things go wrong, they get angry with God because they believe God has promised them something better than that. But God hasn't promised any Christian that in this life. In fact, Jesus in chapter 16 of John's gospel, verse 33 says, in this world, you will have trouble. Or Peter in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 says, don't be surprised by the fiery trial that comes your way as though something unusual or strange is happening to you. 
our life we will experience hardship it is normal it is to be expected and it doesn't take long for any of us to realize that life has hardships life has trouble so as a follower of Jesus Christ when inevitably we experience hardship failure and loss we can take courage and not get angry we can take courage knowing this is normal Jesus said life would be like this in this world that is corrupted by sin think back to the words of Acts chapter 14 verse 21 to 22 where it says this when they preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God how do we enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations troubles hardships hardship is not a sign that God has abandoned you or that he has lost his love or protection over you first Peter 4:12, we just said Peter says don't treat these things as though something strange is happening to you it's to be expected God has indeed promised rich blessings to his children and they are certain they are guaranteed they are solid but God has never guaranteed that the journey there will be smooth and it's my hope today as we work our way through these chapters that we'll see that God provides encouragement and hope even right there in the middle of the most tumultuous storm it's Jesus who'd promised Paul that you will bear witness to me in Rome he said in chapter 23 verse 11 and it does come to take place that he gets to Rome exactly as Jesus promised he would but the journey the way there is not easy nor does Paul lose heart we're going to work our way through the passage seeing that Paul is respected but ignored in chapters 27 1 to 12 that there is hope in the middle of what appears to be hopelessness in 27 13 to 44 he's encouraged to encourage others in 28 1 to 16 and we wrap it up by asking the question so what what do we do with a passage like this so firstly respected but ignored now last week we saw Paul was before Festus King Agrippa and a number of the Jewish rulers and they were trying to come to the bottom of what is the legal case against Paul Paul is asked to be going towards Caesar to have his case heard but Festus hasn't had a clue what to write and the end of that meeting their conclusion unanimously was he's done nothing deserving death or even imprisonment in fact had he not appealed to go to Caesar we would have let this guy go free now this week we see Paul's journey to Rome just as Jesus had promised in 2311 as he set sail from Caesarea amongst a whole shipload full of prisoners but amongst those who are on the ship is Luke the author of Acts we see the expression we did this we did that throughout this chapter so presumably Luke is on this boat as well 
and Aristarchus, a Thessalonian Christian, who is along the boat with Paul. Now, presumably, that was some special concession that was given to Paul to have a couple of these guys accompany him for this journey. And we've seen through the, the previous chapters a number of times where the Romans have graciously cared for, protected, and provided kindness towards Paul, whom no verdict has been placed against him. In verse 3, we read about a centurion named Julius, who was even so kind to let Paul visit some of his friends in Sidon along the way. But when they arrived in Myra and Lycia, they get onto another boat, an Alexandrian ship, that is a ship from the city of Alexandria from, from Egypt, which is a ship carrying wheat that was headed to Italy. And so they get onto this boat. But note, even before they get on this boat, verse 4, but now they're on this boat, verses 7 and 8, the wind already is causing trouble. The wind is already causing issues. Eventually they settle at the, at the south coast of Crete in a place called Fairhaven, which you see up on there on your screen right now, both a modern recent picture of, of Fairhaven in Crete as well as where it fits on the map geographically. But while they are there, we see in verses 9 and 10, Paul concludes it's not safe to keep going. And he warns them, we're going to suffer loss of this boat, of people, of cargo. We should stay here. But the centurion chooses to listen to the owner of the boat and to the pilot. And to a degree that makes sense. You think, well, these guys own the boat. These guys do this stuff for a living. Go with them. Why would you listen to Paul? But some experts have concluded, looking at Paul's missionary journeys, that he's spent at least 5,000 kilometers on boats traveling around. So he's quite an experienced traveler. So maybe he has got something worth saying to this situation. So when Paul says, we should stay here, lest we suffer great loss, they don't listen. They continue despite the warnings. So where does this fit in? God has promised Paul that he's going to go to Rome, yet here they are, headlong, headed towards danger. And it continues to get worse. And soon we're going to see how there is hope in the middle of hopelessness. Soon, verse 14, a tumultuous wind comes along. The word translated as tumultuous, the Greek word is typhonikos, from which we get the English word a typhoon. A northeasterly wind that is effectively dragging the boat wherever it wishes. We're not talking, you know, being a little bit choppy, a little bit uncomfortable. Not talking about someone saying, oh, I wish I didn't have a milkshake before I got on this boat. In verse 17, we read they place supports under the boat. Big metal cables wrapped around the boat so that the boat does not fall apart. This storm was not minor. It was a boat-destroying storm. But not only was it not minor, it was not short-lived either. We read on verse 18, day two, the cargo overboard. Day three, they throw the tackle overboard, verse 19. 
Then on top of all of that, after many days, read the words of verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay upon us, all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Hear those last words. All hope of being saved was at last abandoned. Probably in some of the days leading up to this, they were presuming that it was going to work out that they're not going to be saved. But now at this stage, any glimmer of hope there might have been gone. No chance whatsoever. Jesus had said to Paul, you will bear witness to me in Rome. God loves Paul. God loves Luke. God loves Aristarchus. Why are they in this situation where all hope of being saved is gone, is vanished? Where is God? Where's the promise of God to deliver Paul to Rome? Has he forgotten his promises? No, he hasn't. Now, many of you may have had some scary and difficult boat experiences, but I doubt that any of you have had scary, life-threatening boat experiences that have gone on for days, and even less of you have had an experience where every single person on the boat has concluded there's absolutely no chance for any of us. But in the middle of this seemingly hopeless situation comes encouragement. Now, I like to have a little bit of a smirk when I read Paul's opening words there in verse 21. Like, you should have listened. I told you this was going to happen. But when they unanimously concluded there is not a glimmer of hope, listen to Paul's words in verses 22 to 25. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Can you imagine how that would have sounded? Speaking to hundreds of men who have all agreed there's not even the slightest chance of hope. And Paul says, take heart. But there's a reason why Paul tells them to take heart. Because an angel of the God to whom he worships, to whom he belongs, has said, I will save you. The boat, not so good, but I will save you. And then Paul takes that step further and says, And I have absolute faith that this will happen exactly as God said. Everyone could look around. Even Paul could look around and see that there's nothing to the eye with even the remotest hint of hope. Yet Paul was encouraged. Paul saw the same thing that everybody else saw. He could see the waves crashing around the boat. He could see the boat flexing and moving and, and creaking and about to fall apart. But he'd also heard a word from God. 
And that trumped anything he could see, anything he could experience. Now, I wish I knew on what day Paul said these words. The next time reference we have is in verse 14, which speaks about on the 14th night, they got the feeling they were close to land. They put out soundings of 20 fathoms, which is 36 meters. They're away from, from land. Then a bit later, 15 fathoms, which is 27 meters away. So in response, they put down the anchors and they conclude, we'll pray here until morning comes. Now, while they're putting out the anchors, some of the soldiers try to do a bit of a sneaky. I think, while we're putting the anchors down, how about we slowly and quietly put out the life raft, we get on it and we just go on off to the land. But Paul, who sees this, informs the centurion. Actually says, don't let them do this. this. We will not be saved if these men do not stay with us. So the centurion encourages the soldiers to stay. They cut the ropes. They set the light boat free. And in the morning, just before dawn, Paul encourages them to eat. He says, for 14 days they've eaten nothing. Imagine the sort of storm they must have been on a boat to not eat for 14 whole days. And now as the sun is about to come up, Paul's had this word from God that he's going to save them. He's like, we're going to need some strength for this. Let's, let's make sure we eat before the sun comes up. So they all eat and discard any of the wheat that's left over. And as the sun comes up, the boat continues towards the land and runs up on a reef. Now, initially, the soldiers' first thought was, let's kill the prisoners. They're going to all get away. And as far as Roman law was concerned, if you are a Roman soldier and your prisoners get away, you are killed. So that was probably their thinking. Let's kill them because otherwise it's going to be us. Hence why the soldiers that were guarding Jesus' tomb, they were pretty keen to get out of there once Jesus was risen and was, was walked away from that tomb. But the Romans were quick to protect Paul and say, no, we're not going to do it this way. We're not going to kill the prisoners. So starting with those who are capable to swim to the shore, followed by those who would float on things from the ship to get to the edge. Verse 20, we'd read that all hope was abandoned. Verses 22 to 25, we hear Paul say that God has said, God's going to save us. In verse 44, every single one of them has gone ashore. In the middle of what appeared to the eye and to the experience to be a dire impossibility, there was hope in the promise of God, and it happened exactly like God said it would. Paul was encouraged to encourage verses 1 to 16 of chapter 28. How good must it have felt to be on that beach? After 14 tumultuous, life-threatening days to stand on dry land. I can't think they would have even bothered to think about, oh, what will we do now? If it was me, I just would have had a bit of a sleep and just enjoyed the rest. But God hadn't just cared for them by bringing them to safety. The local Maltese people started a fire for them. And even though Paul was probably exhausted, he wants to chip in and get starts getting some of the sticks and, and branches to, to keep the fire going. 
And as the fire burns out of these branches, comes a viper and it latches onto Paul's hand. And the locals are like, whoa, this is a sign. Justice has shown us that this guy is a murderer. Now, the word translated justice could mean just justice in the normal sense that we use every day. But it was also used to them in their local culture of a goddess of justice. And so if you get bitten by a snake in their mind meant that you were a murderer. But when nothing happened to Paul, when he was unaffected by the snake bite, they changed their opinion of Paul very quickly. They go from murderer to God. That's pretty big change. There's a big difference between being a murderer and being a God. It's almost the reversal of what happened in Lystra in Acts chapter 14, where initially they wanted to bow down and worship Paul. And then towards the end of the chapter, they want him stoned. It wasn't just the beach locals who cared for Paul on that island. Even the island chief invites them in. Presumably not all 276 of them, so probably Paul and a number of others, where they cared for them for, for three days as they were spent time with them. But also Paul encouraged and cared for them as he was able to heal the chief's son, and then as they brought other people from the community, Paul was able to, to pray for them and heal them as well. Then after three months of being on Malta, they get on yet another Alexandrian ship headed towards Italy. They begin with Syracuse, Regium, Puteoli, where they spent seven days to allow Paul to spend time with some Christian brothers and sisters and then eventually to Rome by land. Now we know that Paul didn't establish the church in Rome. Paul did write a letter to the church in Rome and that he'd longed to visit Rome. But now as he walks into that famous city, the centre of the greatest empire of the inhabited world at the time, not only was his longing of his heart achieved, but so too was the promise of God that you will bear witness in Rome, chapter 23, 11. None of the journey was smooth sailing. Paul was near death. They were starving. They hadn't eaten for 14 days. But as Paul arrives into Rome, a church which he'd written to, to whom he loved and who he prayed for, the people came out to to meet him, to encourage him. When the brothers there, when they heard about us, they came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. After all of this journey, Paul still seeing the hand of God, the little things God is doing to, to bless him and encourage him along the way. And one more time, we see the providential care of God Whereas Paul's able to stay on his own under the careful watch of a Roman guard. It's been a tough few months. But God has been caring for Paul all along the way. Paul hasn't complained. He has seen and he's acknowledged God's provision at every step. So what do we do with a Bible passage like this? Now I need to admit for a moment here that when I first read the passage, 
I thought, yeah, there's a lot of movement going from this place to this place, from this boat to this boat, this happened. But I was like, is there actually a sermon in this? Like I know in my mind that all of God's words profitable, but this one? And it was a helpful reminder to me that any time we approach any part of God's word and we think to ourselves, is this profitable? The problem is never with God's word or with God. The problem is always that I've missed something that God has given me to profit me. And so I'd encourage you when you come across passages like this, to delve deeper, to, to prayerfully read through it, because God has something profitable in all of his word. And in the end, it was actually hard to settle on just two important things by way of conclusion. The first one is this. God's promises are guaranteed, but smooth sailing is not. God's promises are guaranteed, but smooth sailing to get there is not guaranteed. God had promised Paul that he would bear witness to him in Rome. Paul didn't get a limo taken to an airport, get on a private jet, have canapes and cocktails, arrived in five-star luxury without any trouble whatsoever. No, we are reminded by the words of Jesus in this world, you will have trouble. Or from Peter's perspective, don't think about these trials as though something strange were happening to you. It's normal. It's, it's to be expected. Don't let it throw you. But to a person who has the sort of worldview that thinks that Christians should never experience hardship, sickness, this is hard for them to take. And if you think this way, it's going to set you up for frustration, for hurt, disappointment. Paul didn't just experience minor inconveniences. It's not like he, oh no, the cruise ship's delayed. We've got to wait another couple of hours. I'm going to have to go back to Macca's and have a, have a McFlurry. He was on this boat and traveling for months facing huge storms and, and worry about his own life and the life of the whole people, 276 people on the boat, holding this thing together with cables so the boat is, doesn't bust apart. Now, I'm pretty soft. When we went out to see the, the Great Barrier Reef, I saw something where you could get on a jet boat and I thought, it's quicker, you get less likely to get sick, I'm going with it. And I'll tell you, if I started to get sick on that, I probably would have complained about it. But here's Paul has experienced 14 days of an uncontrollable storm in a boat that's being held together by cable, haven't eaten for 14 days, and to the eyes and to everyone on board, there's no glimmer of hope. Never once does Paul complain. Never once does Paul question, God, you've got it wrong. What about what you promised me? Don't, don't you remember all these things I've done for you? In fact, along the way, Paul continues to see and give thanks for the encouragement that God provides. Knowing that the God whom he worshipped, whom he belongs to, was with him. He had absolute faith regardless of what his eyes and his experience could see, 
that God would do exactly what he said. What he could see, what he could weigh up, all of the evidence says, no, there's nothing. But one promise from God means that everything I see and I perceive is unreliable. I listen to what God says, that changes everything. Now, I don't know how your week's been going. I don't know how your life's going. I know COVID-19 itself has its own difficulties associated with it. But even without that, on any given week, there are going to be people who are going through things that are just tough. It's normal. It's to be expected. Doesn't mean it's not hard. But what I will encourage you to do is to look for the little signs of God's encouragement, God's blessing that he provides along the way to sustain you. He always gives enough just, just to keep us going. He never puts in a situation where it's just too much for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. Storms of life are not a sign that God has abandoned you. It's a sign that you're on the journey. Where God has promised to take you, he will take you regardless of how possible that might see or appear at the time. He has promised that we will grow more and more to become like his son. He has promised that if we are his child on the last day, we will be raised and go up and we will be with Jesus forever, experiencing nothing but blessing. Guaranteed, nothing can shake that. Which leads us to the second point. How do we respond to those sure and certain promises of God. Now God has promised Paul that he will get to Rome. He's promised the people that they will safely make it to shore that nobody on the boat will be harmed. So did Paul just chill, twiddle his thumbs and do nothing? Just waiting for the blessing of God to, to lavish and wash all over him? No. God's promises to act do not take away our responsibility to respond. Be like someone reading that passage in 1 Corinthians 10:13 and saying, God didn't God didn't rescue me. He didn't take me out of this situation. It got too much. God didn't promise to rescue in 1 Corinthians 10:13. He promised to provide a way of escape. And give you all the strength you need for you to get yourself out of there. Likewise, in this passage, Paul has been promised that you will get to Rome. No one's going to get hurt. But still, Paul warns the people to stay in fair haven for winter to protect themselves. Says, you must run aground, verse 26. Encourage them to eat food, to have strength. For when they make their way to land, they directed the ship towards the land. 
They got the swimmers to swim. They got others to hold on to things to get them to the, to the land. There's responsibility. God's promise didn't just happen. We had to act in obedience and faithfulness. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Apart from me, you can do nothing. Responding to the promises of God is never just believing that they are true. Rather, it is walking in obedience, in faithful obedience, because you know they are true. The best way to enjoy the promises of God is to walk in closeness with the God who made the promises. Like Paul, who lived by faith, by faith in what God had said, even though everything around him and everyone around him has said, this is hopeless. There's no way out. Keep your eyes open. Keep your eyes open for the encouragement, for the little things that God provides us to sustain you, to keep you going on the journey in the middle of the storm. After all, Paul, seeing Paul's faith, the rest of the people on the boat had heard that Paul said that not even one of your hairs will be damaged. In verse 34 it says, And they all were encouraged. By seeing Paul's faith, it became infectious. They saw there's a God that can be trusted. But the storm is not a sign that you've been abandoned by God. It's not a sign that God doesn't care for you. Being in the storm is a sign that you are on the journey. May we see God sustaining. May we see the encouragement that he provides along the way and hold firmly to the promises and the word of God that we might continue to walk and endure through even the darkest storms. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you can be trusted at all times. We thank you that even what our eyes can see is not the greatest depiction of reality. What you say is true is reality. As Jesus prayed, sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. May we be a people who know what you have declared to be true, that we would live by it even when our life experience seems to be pointing in the completely opposite direction. Because Lord, we love you, we trust you, and we know that you are able to do everything that you promise that you will do. And we thank you for that with great confidence that has been purchased for us by the blood of Christ. Amen.